Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've downloaded this MP3 to your podcast listening device and that you're ready to dive into the world of music once more. This is a listener Q&A episode. We have had a ton of people send in really good questions for the show, and I have a million to get to, so I want to get right to it. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna blast through as many of these questions as we possibly can. I've learned since the last Q&A that there's really just no way that I'm gonna be able to answer every question that everybody sends in. So if I don't get to your question, I apologize, and I do have a big master list of questions that um that I do refer back to sometimes. So you never know if I don't get to your question on this episode, maybe I'll get to it on the next Q&A episode. As always, if you would like to send in a question for that next Q&A episode, or if you just want to send feedback or really just a song recommendation or anything, you can email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me at Kirk Hamilton. That's K-I-R-K Hamilton. Just before we get started, um, I sent out one newsletter. This is my own newsletter, which talks a lot about strong songs, which is also about my own musical projects, uh, links to cool articles and videos, all kinds of stuff like that. I will be sending out another one, you know, probably in the next week or two. So if you'd like to sign up for that, you can do that at tinyletter.com slash Kirk Hamilton, and there is a link to do that down in the show notes. All right, let's get to it. Our first question actually came from quite a few listeners uh, who wrote in about a song called The Four Chords by a group called The Axis of Awesome. Uh, Benjamin, who wrote in his question, is kind of indicative of what a lot of the questions were. And it uh, he's, he writes, you are probably familiar with The Four Chords by The Axis of Awesome. I would really like to know why this works out so well when they play it and why is this chord progression so popular? So this is a chord progression. This is related to the Let It Go episode that I did about Let It Go from Frozen. And I talked a little bit about this chord progression. It also turns up in Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Um, it also turns up in How Far I'll Go uh, from Moana, which came after Frozen. And it just, it turns up in a whole lot of songs, as evidenced by this very funny song by The Axis of Awesome. I actually didn't know this song, and I watched the, the video for it on YouTube, and it just totally cracked me up. It's really brilliant. Um, so here's a clip of that song, just so you can kind of get what they're if doing. I could, and I would, I'd go Okay, okay, you get it. It's the same chord progression over and over and over again. And it's this one chord progression that turns up in so, so many songs. So what is that chord progression? Well, in terms of numbers, it's a one, five, six, four. So it's a one major to a five major to a six minor to a four major. But without getting too into the theory weeds, it sounds like this. This is the this is the key that they're doing it in. So we're in E. We go to B. Then to C sharp minor and then to A major. And that's the chord progression. I mean, just seriously, probably thousands of songs use this chord progression. And that's the joke of the song, right? Is that they go and they go and they go and the song just keeps going. And by the end, you're thinking, holy cow, how could there possibly be this many songs with the same chord progression? Of course, uh, there are. Uh, the reason for that is sort of hard to pin down. I don't have a super solid reason. It isn't like everyone got together at the composer's symposium one year and decided, and from now on, we will write all of our choruses over this one chord progression. I think it's that the chord progression lends itself to melodies in a certain way. It contains four sort of colors that work well 
well together. The one major to five has a certain sound. The six minor brings a little bit of a minor key into it. The four sets up the one. A four chord resolves to a one and sounds a certain way. But really, this is just one of those things where people popularize the sound. It's a good sound and people use it more. I think it's worth looking back at how far back you can go um, and still find examples of this chord progression. For example, here's a piece of music that you probably know that starts out with the same chord progression. That's right, Johann Pachelbel's Canon in D has a lot in common with this chord progression. It starts with the same three chords. It goes in a slightly diff different direction, but it's uh, largely pretty same. And you know, that was composed, I guess, like a hundred years ago or so. So um, this kind of a chord progression has been around for quite a while. It goes outside of pop music and into other forms of music. And um, it just, it works really well for writing melodies over, I guess would be my short answer to the question about why it is so prevalent. But it's also just a little bit of a funny thing where people hear a song, they like the chord progression, they realize they can write a cool new melody over the same chord progression and get a similar effect, and then it kind of cascades and replicates and more and more people use it, and it's kind of how any trend like that catches on and becomes sort of a trope. Speaking of tropes, on the last Q&A episode, I talked about musical Wilhelm screams, which is something that, you know, you it's a sound effect or a, or a sample or a, a chord progression that when you hear it, you kind of can't unhear it and you start hearing it everywhere. And a lot of people wrote in to tell me about something that I really should have mentioned when I was talking about that, which is the Amen Break, probably the most sampled drum fill in all of music that turns up in hip-hop recordings everywhere. Uh, I know it probably best from NWA's Straight Out of Compton, but it's seriously on so many tracks. It sounds like this. You've heard it a million places. It was originally recorded by a drummer named Gregory Coleman. And there are a lot of really good explainers about the Amen Break on YouTube and elsewhere. I will link to one in the show notes. So just go watch that. It's a really interesting story of how this one drum fill became just so ubiquitous. Our next question comes from Kasix, who writes in, Could you explain the melody to Putin on the Ritz and syncopation more generally? Uh, that's a fun question. I really, really like the song Putin on the Ritz. So let's listen to a quick recording of just the melody to the famous standard Putin on the Ritz. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putin on the Ritz. That's Ella Fitzgerald, of course. Go ahead, Ella. Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes and cut away coats, perfect fits. Putting on the Ritz. So what K6 is asking about is the sort of the rhythmic arrangement of the melody and the way that they they establish one sort of rhythm and then they move it and they syncopate it in these interesting ways. Um, it's a really cool melody and it does something very clever with the way that it's phrased. Uh, this piece, by the way, is written by Irving Berlin. I think it was written in the early 20th century. And uh, there are all kinds of versions of it. There are like dance versions, techno versions, big band versions. I like the Ella Fitzgerald version because the Ella Fitzgerald version of most songs is usually the best version of that song. But in Instrumental versions do make it a little bit easier to pick out what's going on. So the basics of the melody are built around, this is in C minor, and it's just built around a C minor chord. Uh, it sounds like this. And then, of course, we end it here. 
So that melody is really simple, and I think it does something smart by establishing itself very simply at the beginning. It's just downbeats. Ba ba ba. It just does three downbeats. But then the next time it goes through the same phrase, it's the same notes, but it displaces them a little bit. Ba da ba da. So it does eighth notes instead of just quarter notes, which then causes things to to sound a little bit on the upbeats instead. And then on the last phrase, they actually go back to quarter notes, but the quarter notes are displaced a little bit. So ba 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 ba. So it's the same collection of four notes, but they're moved in different ways. And that kind of lets it gives your ear something to hang on to because you're familiar with the order of the notes, but they're changing the rhythm. So it kind of it kind of highlights the way that the rhythm is a little bit different. And I think that that's a smart way to approach syncopation if you want it to be something that draws the audience in. Now syncopation, that's a kind of big word. What that basically Means is music that involves downbeats and upbeats. Um, so the downbeat is if you're listening to something and the downbeat is going one, two, three, four. The upbeat will be one and two and three and four and like that. It'll be kind of bouncing on the upbeat. If you start writing music that's got a whole lot of upbeats, that's very syncopated. It has a kind of a bounce and a drive to it that's very different than something that's very thuddy and heavy and downbeaty. Um, you know, a lot of heavy rock is very downbeat centric. A lot of Latin music and dance music tends to be more upbeat centric. It's kind of a way of of adding bounce to things. So if you want to write a melody that you know kind of highlights that syncopation, putting on the Ritz is actually a really really good example of that because it takes a melody that is all downbeats at first and then totally rearranges it a couple of times without changing the notes of the melody, which I think is really clever. Our next question comes from Iad, who writes, "Here's a question for you: Is it possible for a song to have more than two time signatures simultaneously with different time for different instruments? There is a fish song whose timing has always confused the heck out of me. This is the song First Tube from the album Farmhouse. The main guitar riff and the drums seem to be out of sync somehow. It's like an itch you can't scratch, but it really works somehow. Well, let's start by listening to that song First Tube from Iad's example, and then we'll try to pick apart what they're doing." Okay, that's a cool little part. That's a Trey Anastasio, Fish's guitar player, playing this kind of interesting thing that does sound like he's playing in a different time signature than the bass and the drums. However, he is definitely not. He's playing in the same time signature. He's just playing a kind of a creative line. So just to answer Yad's question, yes, it is possible for two musicians to be playing kind of in different time signatures. You know, they kind of have to agree on the time on some fundamental level, but it's very common in music for the bass player and the drummer to be playing a really driving 4-4 thing and for other people in the band to be playing playing kind of like triplets imposed over that is a pretty common one, which is sort of 3-4 over 4-4 time, which can sound pretty wild. That's actually not what's going on here. What's going on here is a little bit more straightforward in a certain way, and that's just that Trey Anastasio is playing, uh, he's playing 16th notes, but he's dividing up the melody in an interesting way. So let me break it down really quickly without going too uh, in-depth on it, just to kind of explain to you the fundamentals of what he's doing. So a good place to start, usually the best place to start when you're trying to figure out something rhythmically weird is to to establish a bass line, which means listening to the bass and listening to the drums. In this case, the tempo is kind of here. One, two, three, four. So the key to getting at what Trey is doing is going a few layers below the one, two, three, four, which those are the four beats of the tempo. That Those are quarter notes. If you break it down to 16th notes at this tempo, you get... 
one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, four, two, three, four. So those are sixteenth notes. There are sixteen of them in a bar. Uh, that means there are four per uh, four per beat because we're in four four. Four times four is sixteen. Anyways, um, if you break it into sixteenth notes, you start to hear it as. So you want to be able to start kind of hearing things that way. Now what Trey is doing is creative. He is playing So he's doing the thing on the 16th notes. He's playing in the same time as the bass and the drums. He's just dividing himself in a kind of a creative way where he's playing every three 16th notes. So in a way it makes it sound like he's playing a superimposed time signature, but what he's really doing is just he's emphasizing uh, unusual 16th notes compared to the ones that you would normally emphasize, and ones that kind of stand in contrast to the 16th notes that are being played by the bass and the drums. So to, just to try to break that down, here we go. We're going to take, here's the bass part, the bass line kind of broken up into 16th notes. The notes are the same, but we're reattacking on every 16th note so that we can get into that 16th note mindset. So here's what that sounds like. hear what I'm doing? If we go and we, we remove that 16th note subdivision, we're getting the same rhythms and just longer notes because we're not breaking them all up and they sound like this. So with that established, we can do what Trey is doing, which is those same number of 16th notes, he's just accenting himself in a different way. So if we put what he's doing over what they're doing, it sounds like this. So obviously that's a very, very quick summary of, of kind of a very complicated and fundamental idea, which is subdivision of notes. But um, I hope it gives you some sense of what's going on there. They're not completely playing in a different time signature or anything like that. They've just subdivided their notes in a creative way to make it sound like they are. And then when the other instruments start coming in, when the keyboards come in, they're playing even farther outside of time. And, you know, it is possible, I think the piano is kind of doing this on this track, to just totally play out of time, to just kind of randomly hit notes in a kind of arbitrary order with no sense of the time. And you're not playing in a different time signature necessarily than the drummer. I mean, when they all land together on a downbeat, which they do in this song, you know, they're all together. But you can kind of stretch farther and farther away from an established downbeat the way they do in this song. And it can be a pretty cool effect, um, like here and in a lot of other music too. For our next question, Robbie writes in, Why do I enjoy the sound of chords adding a ninth so much? I play some piano and every time it comes up, I melt. What is it about the add nine that gives the chord the goosebumps effect? Robbie, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a clear answer, but I totally agree with you about an add nine or a sus nine chord. This is the sound of that chord, just so you can know what we're talking about. So that's a C add nine chord. And the difference between that and a C major is pretty significant. So here's a C major. This is just a straight up normal C major chord. And here's a C major chord with that added nine. I'm not sure totally what it is, but I think that it gets to something that I talked about back on that Dancing Queen episode, back when we were talking about lushness, and the idea of a little bit of dissonance actually adding a richness to the sound of a chord. In this case, the add nine, and especially for me, it's when you add the nine on top of the root, you get a a whole step, which is kind of a dissonant interval. In that C chord, it's these two notes, the C and the D, they're right here. 
And that sound is just a really nice sound to have on top of a major chord. So, Robbie, I don't have a scientific answer for you. Other than that, I think it's just a really nice sounding kind of a chord, especially when you get into the upper register. And what I really like to do is take the third out and you just play the root, the fifth, the root up an octave, and the ninth on top. I just think that's a beautiful sound, especially in the kind of high up chords on the piano. It sounds really, really good. Um, so, you know, adding a ninth is one of many kind of chord extensions you can do to make a chord sound better. And uh, yeah, a little bit of dissonance, a little bit of difference can really make a chord ring in a, in a really nice way. Steven writes, I have always been a big Led Zeppelin fan. In their song, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, there's a strange sound that has plagued me since high school 25 years ago. It comes at a minute and 42 seconds into the song, immediately as Robert Plant ends singing, Really Got to Ramble. It sounds like a small child or baby is saying something in the background. I would be eternally grateful if you could find out what this is for me. So unfortunately, I do not have Jimmy Page on my speed dial. I cannot just call him up and ask him what it is. But um, I thought that it would be kind of fun to just listen to it and and see if we can figure out what it is. So let's listen to the section of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You in question. So the first time I heard this, I instinctively knew what I immediately thought that it was, and I'm guessing that a lot of people listening to this had the same uh, instinctive thought. Let's just listen to it up close and personal to this sound and see if we can hear it one more time. Well, this is Kirk from the future now, and I am updating this episode almost two years after I made it because it is time to finally correct what I initially got wrong about what that sound is. Now, what I was getting ready to tell you, I was warm enough to tell you that I thought that it was a baby and that someone had maybe had a baby in the studio when Led Zeppelin was recording this, but a lot of people have written in, and I actually mentioned this on a future Q&A episode as well. I sort of issue a correction then, but I never updated the episode. A lot of people wrote in to let me know that no, that is actually Robert Plant's voice. That's maybe from a scratch vocal or some other vocal track that has bled over into the final recording. And it's Plant saying, I can hear it calling me. And it becomes very clear that that's what he's saying once you can hear it. He phrases it kind of, I can hear it calling me, which of course is the very next lyric that Plant sings. I can hear it calling me the way it used to do. And once you know that's what he's singing, you can hear it very clearly. Check it out. So there's your correction from almost the year 2021. It's been a while since uh, since I listened to this episode, and it's fun to think of the past version of me making this episode, uh, not aware that I would still be making it several years later, and uh, the show's actually going really well. So past Kirk, I'm going to hand it off back to you, but just so you know, the show's going great, you're still having a great time, and actually you've been doing a lot of singing and invested in a better preamp and some better plugins, so your voice actually sounds better now than it did two years ago. But okay, past Kirk, I'm going to give this show back to you. Thanks to everybody who wrote in with that correction for keeping me honest. Let's get back to answering your questions. I can hear it calling me the way it used to do. Our next question comes from Richard, who asks a very straightforward question. He asks, is Freebird a good song? Richard, my answer is also simple. Yes, Freebird is a good song. Next question comes from Dag, who asks, would Just a Friend be better or worse if it had a bass line, or if Biz Marquee could sing? That's actually kind of a fun question, Dag. Let's listen to just a clip of Biz Marquee's Just a Friend. Guess what I'm going to sing. You, you got what I need. 
So this is actually kind of an interesting one. Um, this tune doesn't have any bass. I don't think that the bass is like really a huge, I mean it's a big part of the sound. The drums kind of have a lot of bass in them. With or without bass, I don't think that would really change the nature of the song that much. But the quality of the singing is an interesting one. Bismarck, he is kind of just howling on this song. He's just yelling, kind of out of tune. He almost sounds like he's inebriated in some way. And that's that's kind of the vibe of the song is this guy kind of howling out. But that's also the energy of the song is a guy who feels wronged and is sort of complaining. It's a very plaintive, almost kind of whiny song. And the way that he sings it is super key to the sound of that. You know, if he performed it, you know, with this perfect, beautiful voice. And, you know, they they put a, a perfect little piano and drum and bass part behind it and and did it that way, it would lose so much of what makes it such a distinct and memorable song. So actually I do think that if if Bismarck he could sing, which I feel like is maybe a kind of a loaded way to describe it, but if he had sang this more precisely and beautifully, it would have lost something to the recording. So yeah, I think that it is really good how it is and it works how it is and and it's a very memorable song because of the way that it's recorded and performed. The next question comes from Dana, who writes, I'm really interested in Indian drum language in Bollywood music, like Liquid Dance from the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack, and I wonder how these effects are created with the human voice. I am a speech pathologist, so I think about this stuff quite a bit. Well, Dana, I am not a speech pathologist, and I'm actually not also not an expert in Indian music, though I do know what you're talking about. And I believe that the word for what you're des- what you're describing is conical. And uh, let's listen to that track from the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack and then maybe another example of of this kind of really cool um, percussive syllabic singing and and maybe talk a little bit about what that means Okay, so obviously that example is uh, pretty produced and they're doing some stuff by slowing down and changing the pitch of the singing. But the basic kind of singing is something that's that's I believe is known as konakal, which is a kind of Indian rhythmic. It's like almost like an oral type of rhythmic notation. You're sort of it's a it's a series of syllables that indicate uh, different subdivision and different rhythms. Uh, that's my understanding anyways. I found it so there's a bunch of cool videos of this. It's spelled K O N N A K O L that I'll link to in the show notes. Here's an example of one of just some guys doing it live into a microphone um, without all the production that's on the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack. <laughs> Man, so it's really cool. Um, I don't want to get too far out of my depth here since that's not it's not really my area of expertise. I've associated a sort of similar kind of um, syllable percussion notation um, with tabla drumming, which is, I believe, from a different region of India. And those are called bowls. I think there are different words that that are sort of assigned to different drums and different sounds. The way I think of it, or at least my understanding of it, just from my own Western music education is, you know, when we talk about drums, we tend to talk in these same sorts of sound effects. I'm sure you've heard someone talk about mts music before. So they'll say, oh, I hate mts music. And that's when you go to a club and you hear mts, 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 and that's the mts. (laughs) 
Um, also, you know, people will say dum tish, and that's kind of platum, like it's someone doing a little uh, a drum fill, like they would do on a late night show after a joke. So when I'm talking to a band or I'm rehearsing someone and I want the drummer to play something, I'll play. I'll say play a voomp, play a pragatum. You know, and you kind of say these made up uh, syllables that then denote you know what you want the drummer to do, and everybody agrees on them. I mean, you you play enough bands and enough people talk in these sort of shorthand weird sound effects and I remember when I was teaching a high school band the kids always thought it was so funny when I would do that even though if I had been working with you know a bunch of other people who'd been playing instruments for a long time they'd have no problem with that um, and it doesn't just apply to drums too you know trumpet players will play a doit when they go doit on their on their trumpet you know everyone kind of has these funny little um, phoneticized things. And this is, I believe, it's a more of a kind of standardized, really elaborate form of the same thing. It's really cool. It's something to look into more. I've linked a few things in the show notes to check it out. Like I said, not my area of expertise, but some really fantastic music and worth giving a listen to. Ryan writes in to ask, I was wondering if you could explain what a chiptune is. Sure, Ryan, I can take a crack at it anyways. Chiptune music is a type of music typically associated with video games, though it kind of has gone way outside of video games now, and you'll hear chiptune sounds kind of all over the place. But what does it mean for something to be a chiptune? Well, basically speaking, uh, a a chiptune music is when someone uses the original sound module from an old video game system, like a Nintendo or a Game Boy, to, um, to make the sound that they're then using, sometimes combined with you know modern modern synthesizers, acoustic instruments, even all kinds of things. But you're kind of going back and getting those original uh, sound modules and using those to make the sounds that you're you know for modern music. Those. Uh, sound modules tended to be very limited, especially like an old Nintendo, you know, game from whatever, from the late 80s. It would not have a whole lot of notes going on and it would have some very specific sounds. And that's because it wasn't just, you know, now in a video game, you can hear a full orchestral score. They can just record um, a, a wave file and compress it and put it on a DVD or, you know, on a, onto something that you download and it just plays. At the time, they were making the music at the, you know, in the hardware itself. It was sort of playing out of the chip. And so chiptune music takes those same sounds and sometimes takes that physical hardware and uh, and puts it in the band. So some really famous chiptune groups include Anamanaguchi, really great group. Um, they, I believe, have a Nintendo on stage with them. One chiptune artist that I really like is uh, Chipsel. Her real name is Nia of Houston, and she's really incredible. I met her a couple times at uh, the Game Developers Conference, and she does super cool music. She uses a Game Boy, actually, to do a lot of her stuff. Um, here's a clip of one of her tunes. It's called uh, Spectra. Check it out. Chipsel did the soundtrack for the phone game Super Hexagon, which if you haven't played it, that's a really good game, and the music is a huge part of why. She has this just really intense kind of dance stuff that's just really, really cool. So I recommend checking her out. Check out Anamanaguchi. Um, Jake Kaufman, a guy named Vert, who did the music for a game called Shovel Knight, I think he did a lot of that using an original NES um, system to make the sounds. It's really incredible stuff on the Shovel Knight soundtrack as well. Um, I'll link to that stuff in the show notes. But basically, the, the distinction is that Chipton music is typically made using that original hardware. Um, there are, you know, you can buy synth plugins for most recording software that'll make things that sound the same, you know, that kind of, they they, uh, they sample it and they, they make it sound the same. But I, I would say that most chiptune artists make it a real point to kind of 
do the engineering required to actually get the original chips and make those original sounds. Uh, it's sort of like anything else where if you really want the sound, you kind of have to go back to the source and get the thing. You can buy something and it's much easier and more accessible if you want to make the sound. You can get something that does it digitally. But I would say, you know, generally speaking, it, it, if you want to get the original sound, you kind of have to go and take apart the NES and actually make the sounds with it. Next question comes from Eric, who has a specific song that he's wondering about that really kind of bugged me out. Um, Eric writes, can you explain what happens in the final minute of Apex Twins' Mount St. Michelle? When I listen to this song at home, everything just sounds a little muted. But when I'm listening on headphones, there's a strange effect that makes it sound like the music is coming from inside my head, like right behind my eyeballs. Let's listen to that to the last minute of that song from Apex Twin and see if we can figure out what's going on. Wow, so what a trip that is. When I went to listen to this um, after reading this question, it really kind of made my brain fall out of my skull a little bit. Um, and I'm I'm not entirely sure what the effect that he's doing there. So now Aphex Twin is actually just a guy named Richard David James. He's a really influential electronic musician. And the, he, he does this kind of stuff. I'm not a huge listener of Aphex Twin music, but I've heard this in this kind of music and in other um, electronica where... The, the people writing the music will experiment with ways of like manipulating the physical sound wave in the music in a way that causes your ear to react almost physically, to give you a sort of a visceral physical reaction to the music. And I definitely have that to this. I think that what's going on is that there are, there are these micro silence moments inserted so quickly in in the beat that you can't fully process them. It's either that or there's some sort of phase cancellation going on, which is a complicated concept I don't really need to explain, but it's it's when two sound waves are kind of moving at the same exact rate and they cancel one another out, It's uh, which is another sort of an effect that you'll hear a lot actually in guitar music and in, in some 60s studio stuff where it almost feels like the music is moving in a certain way, like phasers and flangers do that as well. This to me sounds really choppy, almost like it's cutting in and out, but so quickly that you can't tell that it's cutting in and out. Um, so let's just listen to that, to that very, you know, kind of culminating part of this just for another second and really pay attention if you're listening on headphones in particular to just how it makes your brain feel. I think this is a really cool example of, of the sort of physical way that music impacts us that's slightly different than really any other kind of, you know, sensory input that we can we can have. There are definitely sounds that you'll hear that'll trigger a physical reaction in you because they are actually hitting you physically. You're being hit by a sound wave and that moves, you know, through through space and kind of actually impacts you in a, in a physical way. And so when you hear something like that, it can really, really jar your kind of just equilibrium 
equilibrium in a way that I think is really, really cool and powerful. And it's one of the reasons that seeing music live or experiencing with other people can be so neat. So I believe that it's some sort of really quick cutting, cutting up and inserting of silence in a way that is happening so fast that you you kind of blur over the space and the silence between the notes. Not totally positive about that. If anybody listening has a theory on what Aphex Twin is doing there, um, and or or knows, you know, has seen has seen what he's doing, definitely uh, reach out and let me know because I think it's really fascinating and really cool sounding. Next question comes from Kira, who writes, "Why do jazz chords, especially on piano, sound so cool? What's the shorthand or some of the tricks for making really crunchy, cool jazz chords?" Well, I am not a jazz piano player. I I studied jazz piano and I can play some jazz piano, but I'm not a jazz pianist. But I do think I I, I get what Kira is going for here, so I'll I'll do my best to answer. And basically, jazz piano chords tend to have a lot more closeness in the way that they're voiced, so they're not quite as spread out, and um, there are more there's more dissonance and more strangeness, and there's also just a lot more rhythm in the way that the piano is played. For a long time, when I was just a kid and thought about the piano, I always thought of the piano as just its own thing. It's the piano. I didn't think of it as is it a woodwind? Is it a percussion instrument? Is you know what is it? And really, the piano is the closest thing. It's a it's really a percussion instrument. It's you're pressing a button that causes a hammer to hit a string. So piano is a very percussive instrument. You kind of hit the keys. And I think that jazz piano players uh, really leaned into that quite a bit. Um, one good example is Thelonious Monk, the sort of master composer and really idiosyncratic piano player who was all about just sort of mashing really interesting chord voicings, really tight kind of discordant chord voicings, um, you know, in, in a kind of iconic way. Here's him playing the intro to his song, Well You Needn't, which is sort of a vintage Thelonious Monk. It's a vintage Monk recording. So here's the intro to that. So if you listen to what Monk is doing specifically on the piano there, or really on any Thelonious Monk recordings, which if you haven't listened to Thelonious Monk, you really should. He's a, he's a really cool piano player, um, wrote a lot of really good music. But if you listen to what he's playing, he is a very aggressive player, and he's unafraid to put a whole bunch of notes very close to one another. And I think, you know, there are all kinds of jazz pianists who do all kinds of things and all kinds of chord voicings and, you know, some big, broad chords and some really little tight chords. But I think that that tightness tends to be the thing that kind of defines a lot of jazz piano chords to me. And it's just the difference between playing an F7 chord, this tune is an F, is playing an F7 chord that sounds like this versus playing one that sounds like that. And then of course, if you're a monk, you're gonna play it and it's gonna sound like this. So that's a very short, you know, intro to the answer to that question, which is a much bigger question. But I hope that that's helpful, Kira, and gives you a sense, or at least a starting sense, of why jazz chords sound the way that they do. Okay, we've got time for a couple more. So this one comes from Julio, who writes, A quick question about horror movie soundtracks. Specifically, what is the plucking noise that you sometimes hear during disturbing scenes? And then he gives a few examples, like the Insidious, uh, the movie Insidious, or from the X-Files. Says he's heard it in all kinds of horror stuff. It sounds kind of like rubber bands being plucked. So Julio, you're pretty close on that, but uh, let's listen to one of your examples. This is from the X-Files, classic sci-fi show, uh, from a scene where Dana Scully runs into something creepy. (laughs) 
<laughs> ah, yes, the old pizzicato strings of creepiness. If you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, I have heard that a million times. Or maybe you're thinking, I know exactly what that is. And the answer is actually pretty close to Julio's guess. It is a little like rubber bands being plucked. It is uh, actually violin and other orchestral string instrument strings being plucked. So pizzicato strings, pizzicato refers to when you um, pluck at the strings with your finger rather than playing them with a bow, which is totally valid way to play um you know a lot of a lot of string instruments so uh, when you get the whole orchestra and they're all kind of plucking really randomly really high up you get this sound that sounds a little bit like uh like creepy crawly creepiness you know it's funny it's a little bit like the thing i was talking about with aphex twin with the way that music can have a sort of a physical effect on you that kind of a creepy plucky thing it, it kind of evokes insects and spiders for me sorry for invoking uh insects and spiders for you but um but you know like a, a spider leg on a web is sort of plucking the string in this little plinky footstep kind of a way and so if you had little legs crawling across something it sort of sounds like that and I think that that is uh, on purpose you know I, I don't actually know the first movie to use strings in this way though um, there's probably a very rich history of it because it's such a trope in um, in cinematic in cinematic score writing now you'll just hear it everywhere so that is the answer the answer is pizzicato strings is what you're looking for second to last question comes from Eric who writes my question is vinyl or digital which is a better way to listen this is a loaded and very difficult question that I almost hesitate to answer because everybody has their own take on this um, and lots of people have lots of sort of conflicting opinions I guess I can just sort of share my own experience which is I listen to the majority of music that I listen to digitally though I do have a good turntable and I do own a lot of records they tend to be records that I sort of inherited from my parents or went out and specifically bought because they're my favorite album because hey vinyl is really expensive if you want to build a good vinyl collection especially of of new bands or you want to track down original lps of your favorite bands that can get ultra expensive fast also getting a good turntable is expensive and a good amp is expensive the whole thing is expensive where getting a spotify subscription apple music subscription is relatively inexpensive at least in the short term so in one way i find digital is a better way to listen to music because it's easier it's it's more convenient and that is really useful you know i it's nice to just be able to sit down and you know i get all these emails from listeners who tell me check out this band check out that band i can just immediately hop on spotify call them up listen and listen to the music and just get a really great sense of what's happening. So in that sense, I find digital to be a great way to listen to music. However, I have really come to value the experience of listening to records. And I think that that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I, I think records sound really good, um, especially old records that were recorded in analog studios. I think that the record carries a sort of a hard to define element of the recording that just sounds very pleasant. And it's not always as clear. There can be some distortion. But over time, I've grown to you know, appreciate that distortion and the way that sort of the acousticness and even the dirt on the record of the age of the record can kind of add um, a, some sort of quality to it. It feels like you're listening more to an object and less to just the musical information. For me as a musician, I've always really valued the musical information for a long time. That was the primary thing for me. I wasn't a big audio audiophile. I didn't sit around with beautiful speakers because my focus wasn't, you know, listening to, to how 
like to the quality of the sound I can get. I was much more interested in what are they doing? You know, what's the piano player doing? What's the drummer doing? What is this song? What key is it in? And all of that, you know, basically the stuff that I do on this show. And so that information is easiest to get in a digital format when it's at its highest bit rate. It's very, very clear. Where sometimes on a vinyl record, you know, you can't hear it. There are old stories of, you know, jazz musicians learning solos and sitting there with their records and wearing the grooves out until they couldn't even hear the piano solo they were trying to transcribe anymore. So um, in the in terms of practicality, also so I like digital. But vinyl is great because I love going for that sound and just sitting in the room and appreciating how good it sounds. I also like listening to records because it forces me to have some distance from the music. Typically, you put on an album, you just leave it on. Um, it's a little bit more of a communal thing. When I have friends over and we just listen to a record, it's more likely that we'll sit around and actually listen to it, which is really nice. Um, it requires constant upkeep. You know, you get to the end of one side of the record, you have to get up and go over and flip it over, unless you have one of those fancy turntables that does it for you. But I mean, I'm not that fancy. I just have a regular turntable. Um, but you have to get up and kind of take care of it. And I like that it sort of continually engages you in the music. It's a very different experience than just putting on a playlist that just kind of randomly plays. And sometimes you don't even know what's on it because it's one you subscribe to online or something. And that can be nice. That can be great for, for certain settings. But I do like the way that vinyl forces you to kind of engage with the music as an object, as a thing that you're that you're really using. And I think that that is valuable. And I've, I've gotten more and more value out of it. Um, over my life. So uh, I, I guess the, the answer is both. That's maybe not very helpful, but it, it, the answer is it depends on what I'm listening to. But I do really like listening to records and I like listening to things digitally. The last question came from a few different people, but I'll just read Stuart's version of it. He asked, how would you suggest becoming a better listener of music? I would consider myself above average in music knowledge. I can read music, play piano and guitar, but sometimes I feel like I could become a better listener. Well, Stuart, I'm with you. I also also feel like I could become a better listener all the time. Um, I think it's just something you're always chasing and you never really fully master, but I guess I can give a few tips. So my first tip would be focus on the music. I think that is the most important thing. That's the thing that I've really rediscovered in making this podcast for all of you, and it's been the most wonderful side benefit of doing something that I've really loved doing for a lot of different reasons, but um, one of the best has been how I have an excuse now to just get really deep inside a new piece of music every two weeks. So the first step for doing that is just to listen. Um, I think the headphones are really great for this. I know it's it can be great to share music with people. Obviously, listening to music in a great room with good speakers with your friends is fantastic. Um, music, it should always be experienced that way. But if you really want to get better at listening, headphones can be very helpful. Um, buying a good pair of headphones can be useful, too. I actually find that semi-open back headphones, I really like listening to music on those. They just let a little bit of space in, and they make it easier to hear. It feels like I'm listening to a bigger soundscape than closed back headphones, which can kind of close you in, or earbuds, which can feel kind of closed in. So that's one just sort of hardware tip. Um, then I would say just eliminate any distractions. I think so often we listen to music while doing something else, because music is great for that. It can go in the background um, of whatever activity we're currently undertaking, but it's really easy to get completely out of the habit of ever just sitting down and making music the prime like subject of your focus. I hope that this podcast has made the case for nothing else, that it's made the case for the fact that music is worthy of appreciation on its own, not as you know the background for a movie or the background for a video game or the thing that you play while you're working, but as something that you focus all of your attention on and just pay attention to. 
Now, because it's a kind of an oral thing, it's only in your ear and you can't really see it, that can mean closing your eyes. It can mean, I, I, one thing I like doing is putting on headphones and lying on my back and just staring at the ceiling and listening to an album. Um, one thing I actually do like to do is go on walks. Um, when I have a new album that I'm really kind of going over and listening to a bunch of times, I'll put on some headphones and go for a walk, which is, you know, it, lets, it gets me out of my routine and lets me kind of move around, but I, I still really get to listen and focus. But I would say the most important thing you can do for improving how you are as a listener is changing the circumstances under which you listen to music. So after that, you know, if you play instruments, you can start to learn the songs. That's obviously very helpful. Maybe at some point down the road, I'll talk about some tips for sort of figuring out what the chords are in a song or how to learn something by ear, how to transcribe something. But really, my main advice would be remove distractions and sit there and just make yourself sit and listen. And then if you've been, you know, listening to this show or any other shows that are kind of like this and anyone who is you know, good at picking out small things in music, you'll kind of learn how to do that by osmosis. And the more you listen, the more you'll start to hear things. And then, you know, just listen to songs over and over and over again and try to hear new things in them and, and see what you can find. Because uh, I've at least found just over my life, this is a constant thing that is changing. Um, I'll listen to songs I've listened to a hundred times and I'll hear new things every single time. And I don't think that that ever really goes away. You never 100% a song. You just are always hearing new things. And it's one of the most rewarding and wonderful things about listening to music in the first place. And that'll do it for our second Q&A episode. Thank you so much to everyone who took the time to write in a question. And my apologies to everyone whose question I didn't get to. There are just too many. And um, I'll save some of yours to hopefully get to in the future. Maybe I'll try to get back to you if it's a quick answer that I can just give over email. But um, really, thank you so much, everyone, for writing in. As always, you can reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com with any feedback, any questions for a future Q&A, song requests, really anything. I'm always happy to hear from listeners. And you can also find me on Twitter at Kirk Hamilton. That's at K-I-R-K Hamilton. Please continue spreading the word. Tell people that you think might like the show about it. Um, leave me a review on the Apple App Store. We've been getting a lot of reviews, which has been really, really cool to see. Everyone seems to like the show. And each one of those, I think, helps, you know, sort of push the show up and get more people to find it. So, you know, keep spreading the word. Keep leaving reviews. Keep writing in with your requests. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're wonderful. You're all wonderful. And I really, I really appreciate that you're listening. That's all for now. I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.